Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Tragedy of Macbeth. The Tragedy of Macbeth was written by William Shakespeare and was published in the first folio of his works in 1623. Mm. And the film adaptation, which we are discussing in this episode is the uh, Joel Cohen-directed Tragedy of Macbeth that came out in 2021. We're here to talk about William Shakespeare yes, and ag- Macbeth. Again. Yes. We have discussed uh, Shakespeare previously in mm-hmm. our episode on 10 Things I Hate About You, a bit of a different uh, <laughs> adaptation territory of Shakespeare, uh, but still a great episode. Yes, based on the play The Taming of the Shrew, uh, a comedy. We are here now in uh, pure tragedy. Yes. Uh, tragedy land over here. But, you know, it's really exciting to talk about Shakespeare. Ian and I both love Shakespeare, and it's exciting to talk about adaptations of Shakespeare because really Shakespeare is not meant to be read. It's meant to be watched. It's meant to be performed in a play or on the screen or wherever. So it's exciting to have new adaptations come out about it. Yeah, it is. So, you know, and this is kind of for us, different territory. Like you said, plays are meant to be seen. Yeah. So we're kind of like looking, but a lot of people just read Shakespeare, right? Yeah. You know, you read it in class, you, you'll watch movies, yeah. but like, honestly, you don't see it on stage very much Mm -hmm. you're either reading it or watching it on tv most of the time so it's kind of interesting that like the original intent for it to be on the stage is probably the version that we all see the least now yeah because it's the least accessible for people Yeah, yeah yeah uh this is kind of going into our oscar season yes month that we are starting, uh, beginning with The Tragedy of Macbeth. Mm-hmm. We will be doing another Oscar-nominated uh, film next episode. Yes, once one that is nominated for this year, so you can try to try to guess what that will be. Yes. <laughs> uh, Tragedy of Macbeth was not nominated for Best Picture, shockingly, even though we got 10 nominations this year. Yeah. Denzel Washington was nominated, though. Mm-hmm. And he is the first actor to be nominated for portraying a Shakespeare character in, like, 32 years. Wow. I think the last time was was Kenneth Branagh. Oh, my gosh. I I forget what movie, but it was in, like, 1989. Wow. So it's been... It, it, it's been a little while <laughs> since we've gotten a acting uh, Shakespeare nomination. Yeah. And then it was also nominated for production design and cinematography. Definitely deserved. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> that would have been the true tragedy, Adina, is if it did not get those nominations. Uh, I also want to mention at the top that we're doing a bonus episode on maybe one of the most famous Macbeth adaptations out there. Yes. It is uh, Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. Mm-hmm. Which, in all the articles I've been reading about this adaptation... When they talk about other adaptations that are well-known and beloved, Throne of Blood almost always comes up, which is interesting because, you know, it is a Japanese film, Mm -hmm. and therefore it is not bound by the specific verbiage of Shakespeare's lines. Yeah. So it's kind of like freer to tell the story how it wants to tell it. Yeah. And so I'm very excited because I've never seen that Kurosawa film. I've never seen any Kurosawa film. (laughs) (laughs) The only other one I watched was uh, Seven Samurai, which I started watching and then a movie length into the movie. I'm like, how long is this movie? And I'm like, oh, it's three and a half hours. (laughs) 
<laughs> anyway, if you're interested <laughs> to hear us talk about Throne of Blood, um, you can become a patron on our Patreon page at any level. You get access to bonus episodes. We do a bonus episode every month. It's always super fresh, super fun content. So you should definitely check that out. Yes. Uh, are there any more things we want to bother the listeners with before we get into <laughs> no, the actual No, I think we should talk about, content? yeah, let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about the play. Yeah. But I do need to give just a little bit of background information on this play because the context of the history and what's going on at the time I think is really interesting and important. So this play came out after King James I uh, succeeded Queen Elizabeth to the throne. Mm. Queen Elizabeth died. She had no heirs, so the throne fell to her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots' son, you know, which is ironic because she had Mary Queen of Scots killed, and then Mary (laughs) Queen of Scots' son inherits Queen Elizabeth's throne, Mm -hmm. but he is from Scotland, so he was the king of Scotland and England, and Wales, technically. So there's kind of this interest in England at this time in Scottish things. So this play was written for the king by William Shakespeare because they were going to perform it for him. They became the king's men, which means that their acting troupe was supported by patronage of the king before they were supported by uh, Lord Chamberlain, which was a, a you know, a lord in the court, but they kind of ascended to the ranks to be patronized by the king. So they wanted to write a play that would appeal to him. So this is basically uh, a fanfic of King James (laughs) I's first uh, parentage and like lineage. Interesting. Kind of being like, oh, he's descended from these kings. Okay. And this is his lineage. Would that be Banquo's, like, descendants? Okay. Yeah. So this is really, like, trying to win the favor of the king to tell this kind of epic, amazing story of his ancestors. Also to um, capitalize on the interest that a lot of the common people had about Scotland and the history of Scotland because suddenly their king is a Scottish king. Yeah. And suddenly Scotland is part of England. Um, So, yeah, I think it's really important to remember that context as to why we're telling this story and to also acknowledge that Shakespeare got his info from a history that someone else had written. Mm-hmm. And Shakespeare was like, okay, interesting history. I'm going to totally change it. Yeah. <laughs> but it turns out not only did Shakespeare change everything from the history, the history that it was written was also wrong. <laughs> oh, so it didn't matter anyway. <laughs> so none of it mattered. There was a King Macbeth in Scotland. He ruled for like 30 or 40 years or something. Mm-hmm. Um, he may have been responsible for killing the previous king, but it was in battle. Oh, okay. And then he, then Macbeth himself was also killed in battle by Duncan's son. Oh, yeah. And became king. But um, there's no record of it being like a bloody or bad rule. It was just politics. Wow. Imagine your name <laughs> forever after being correlated with like a mass murderer. Yes. In this play that like has like endured <laughs> For so many years afterwards. Well, and like the historians that are looking back really have had a hard time piecing together 
the real life of the King Macbeth in yeah. reality because a lot of these historical records, you know, were made up, embellished, and then of course you have Shakespeare, and so like the record is like so polluted that it's like just really difficult to find out what actually happened. I'm having flashbacks to our Da Vinci Code episode <laughs> and like all of the fake history that that story was based on. <laughs> yeah, I mean Shakespeare writes about history, but he does not write histories, which it's funny because his plays are kind of divided into like comedies, tragedies and histories. Yeah. But they're historical, but they are not an accurate historical account because, you know, he's basing them off of other texts. Those texts were flawed. And then he's trying to make a dramatic story. Yeah. He's just trying to tell a good story first and foremost. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the historical context, I think, is like very interesting to consider when reading this story. Yeah, another thing to think about is the fact that like, um, King James was known for like being kind of superstitious and maybe afraid of witches and like burned witches yeah. as well. So like. Is the addition of the witches in the story to kind of like appeal to him? Interesting. Well, this is supposed to be like a kind of cursed play, right? Definitely, yeah. Uh, Because supposedly witches were upset that (laughs) Shakespeare was like... Giving away their secrets. Yeah, giving away all their like secret lingo and code. And they're (laughs) like, well, time to curse this play forever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. People who are in the theater are not supposed to say the name Macbeth Mm -hmm. unless they're actually performing it. Yeah, because um, they call it the the Scottish play. The right? Scottish play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're not afraid of the curse. No. <laughs> so, beginning with this story, we start off with the three witches that are very prominent characters in this story. The weird sisters. The weird sisters. Which this was a reference in Harry Potter, right? Isn't there a yes, band called yes, the Weird Sisters? Yes, yes, Which I didn't realize was a reference to Macbeth, <laughs> but that's kind of funny. Uh, yes, the Weird Sisters, three witches who are kind of um, foreshadowing characters and events that are about to happen in the story. Yeah. As they're just like talking about God knows what, Yeah, honestly. they're like, shit is happening. Stuff is going on. Just you wait. Yeah, the, uh, the film has this dialogue dramatically cut down and just kind of like placed over black. Yeah. Until the story like really begins. Mm-hmm. And then we are introduced to King Duncan. Yes. Uh, he is kind of in the middle of a war. He is at his like tent mm-hmm. and he is receiving word of the battlefront and what's going on and specifically the brave warrior Macbeth. Yes. There's a rebellion happening in Scotland against the king And we find out that um, there's this one player who is involved, but and who also involved the King of Norway in this plot. And then the king finds out that Thane of Cawdor, who is one of his noblemen, was actually involved in this plot to overthrow him. So uh, Thane of Cawdor is a traitor. The king kind of gives word to have him executed. And because Macbeth has kind of won the day here with Banquo, uh, the king decides that he's going to reward Macbeth for that. Yes, by making him the new Thane of Cawdor. Mm-hmm. So then we cut to Macbeth and uh, Banquo returning from the battle, uh, walking across in the film like this eerie des- desert landscape. Yeah, this was super weird to me because I expected it at first to be 
taking place in Scotland. Yes. And then there's sand. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not saying there isn't sand in Scotland. But it's not the first thing you think exactly. of. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, um, so the production for this movie, all of the sets, everything is on a soundstage. It feels like it, it. And it does. And it gives it this eerie, surreal kind of vibe, but also makes it feel very play-like. Yeah. In that way, like, it feels like it's on a set, but, like, not in a bad way. And yeah. And there's kind of this surreal quality to surreal it. Surreal is a good word to it. It yeah. definitely feels like you're in, like, a horror movie or something. Yeah. Or, like, a nightmare kind of gone wrong. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, The Lighthouse a bit. That, like, especially with the square aspect ratio mm-hmm. and the black and white and... Yeah, it, it's very um, strange. And I've heard people compare this choice also to Throne of Blood. Interesting. Which is a black and white film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Macbeth and Banquo are returning when they happen across the Weird Sisters. Yes. And in the film, and the Weird Sisters are played by Catherine Hunter, mm-hmm. who is so fantastic. Just her voice alone, Ian, I, is enough to send my skin crawling. This kind of grating and you know what speaking it's funny to bring it back to harry potter yet again when i saw her i'm like what do i know her from (laughs) she was the uh neighbor harry's neighbor in the fifth movie oh who like helps him or whatever yes mrs fig yeah it's her (laughs) uh because i'm like what do i know her from uh but yeah she has this physicality to her performance that's like very body twisting i mean the twisted body part at the beginning like how did they do that i don't i think (laughs) It was just all her, probably. Oh, my God. How could she do that? I know. But it's, like, her alone doing the dialogue of, like, the three sisters mm-hmm. until uh, Macbeth and Banquo come upon her. Mm-hmm. And we see in her reflection there's two. Yeah. Making, like, a total of three sisters. Yeah. So, like, the visuals of this scene alone and the performance. And I think that adds to the uncanniness of this and the surrealism, right? Is it one or is it three? Yes. Does it matter, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Is she crazy talking to herself? Are there three personalities within her? Yeah, it just makes it very unsettling, and I really liked that in the movie. Yeah. Uh, This is where we get the first of their prophecies mm-hmm. towards Banquo and Macbeth. Yes. Macbeth is hailed three times, first as Thane of uh, Glamis, I think. Yeah. And then Thane of Cawdor, and then as a uh, future king. And then Banquo kind of asks about his fate, and he's told that he will not be king, but his descendants will be king. I love it. They say, like, both greater and lesser than Macbeth. Yeah. Like, he won't be king, but he'll, like, is the father of a whole line of kings. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like that comparison. Mm -hmm. The idea that, you know, up front, Macbeth is going to be, like, the only one. Yeah. Because we soon find out he has no children, but Banquo, you know, is going to have this whole lineage. Yeah. So they're just like, oh, this creepy, weird <laughs> lady slash women. Yeah. All right. And they kind of Whatever. like. Yeah. Um, they disappear. Sh- yes. Yes. They just like vanish. And they're mm-hmm. like, OK. That was weird, right? <laughs> uh, it's not long after, though, that Macbeth encounters some of the men mm-hmm. who inform him that he is now the Thane of Cawdor. Yeah. In the movie, there's an actual scene where the Thane of Cawdor is killed in front of Macbeth. I mean, he's like, he he doesn't kill him, but the the 
uh, messenger, Ross, who we find out later his name is Ross, is sort of like, you want to kill him? Yeah. I got it. You got it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Which I really think this addition is interesting because it creates a contrast for Macbeth up front. Yeah. Right? Because, like, we know he's this, like, badass warrior Mm -hmm. in war. Um, But when given the chance to execute a man, he's just like, nah. Yeah. Which obviously changes dramatically (laughs) as the story continues. Well, and this is evidence of something going on to him, right? Because he's like, well, I thought they were crazy, but the witches said I would be Thane of Cawdor, and now I'm Thane of Cawdor. Yeah. What about what else they said about me being king? And he kind of has this thing where he's like, well, I didn't have to do anything to become Thane of Cawdor. Yeah. Maybe I don't have to do anything and I'll just become king. But when he sees the king shortly after that, the king announces to everybody that he's naming his son, Malcolm, to be the next king. Kind of like, I don't really know how the Scottish line of succession or king stuff went, but basically kind of putting his son up as like, he's coming, he's going to be heir. And this sort of starts to worry Macbeth. Yeah. That he's like, well, maybe... If I just do nothing, I won't be king. Yeah, it like shakes his belief in mm-hmm. what the uh, the weird sisters said to him. Yeah. Which I just love this whole aspect of the story, this idea of fate and like him not being able to trust it and feeling like he needs to take an active role in it. Yes. Uh, even though he's just been proven that he like doesn't. <laughs> doesn't need to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he writes home to lady macbeth yeah explaining what just happened mm-hmm. that the the encounter with the sisters that him being named thane of cawdor the prediction of the king yeah and lady macbeth is reading this and like seeing the opportunity yeah while macbeth kind of sees it and is like well maybe if i do nothing it'll happen lady macbeth is like no this is our chance to become something great. Yes. And we have to seize this opportunity. She has this whole monologue when she's reading this letter and talking to herself where she's like, this is our chance. This is the opportunity we need. He's prophesied to be king. We will succeed in whatever we do because it's prophesied. Yeah. Um. So we must do what needs to be done. She's very vague here, Mm -hmm. but she's very determined. And she specifically kind of like calls out to evil spirits and asks to be unsexed. Yeah. And that her femininity be removed so that she will have the strength to make sure this act happens. I thought the way this was depicted in the film was interesting because it's almost like a sexy scene. Yeah. As she's saying it, she lays in bed and like a lot of the verbiage is like, and I feel bad, like I'm going to be paraphrasing a lot and Mm -hmm. it's Shakespeare and I feel like that's a sin to paraphrase Shakespeare, but I'll be doing it. So just, you know, (laughs) deal with it. But she says something along the lines of like, fill me up with darkness. Yeah. And, you know, things like that that just kind of have this sexual implication as she's, like, laying in bed and saying it. So Mm -hmm. I thought the approach to that scene was, like, really interesting. I mean, it's very witchy, right? Yeah. Super witchy. And Macbeth ends up coming back and is like, the king is coming here to stay. And they kind of have this discussion where they're talking about what they should do. Mm -hmm. And Lady Macbeth is like, well, you know what needs to be done. Leave it to me. I'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. And, you know, Macbeth is like, uh, okay. Like, he, he, like, clearly Lady Macbeth is, like, kind of taking the reins in this moment. Yeah. And really, I mean, he, 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 
Macbeth already kind of implied that he might need to do something. Yeah. When uh, Duncan, you know, declared his son the next king. and mm-hmm. But it seems Lady Macbeth is the one who's really uh, putting the pedal down to act immediately. Yeah. The, the king arrives. He's there. And at this time, Macbeth is sort of like, no, I can't do it. Like he starts <laughs> yeah. to he starts to have doubts. And I think his doubts are really interesting for his morality and also to talk about the time. Um, he talks about his duty to the king. Um, he's actually a relative to the king. He calls him mm. kinsman. Yeah. Um, so however closely they're related, there is some family relationship there. Also, he is the host mm-hmm. of the king. And it's actually like ancient, ancient like customs that to harm someone when you are their host, like kind of goes against a lot of ancient customs. Yeah. Yeah. He really um, puts a lot of emphasis on that, I think, in his speech about hosting him. Yeah. And this kind of being like a betrayal of that just principle of like humanity almost. Mm -hmm. And the morality of this story is interesting because Duncan, you know, he's not painted as being like the decision to kill him is purely based on this prophecy and seizing this prophecy yeah and the act itself is not obscured morally in any way like really Macbeth has no justification no or wouldn't under any other circumstances to kill Duncan like Duncan seems like a perfectly fine decent king yeah like the play gives us no reason to think like oh well he has to do this if And Macbeth doesn't even try to justify it. No, no. So, like, it's kind of this interesting gray area. And something else that we read in a lot of the supplementary materials at the end of our playbooks was talking about how Macbeth kind of doesn't really have a lot of obvious motivation for going through with this plan. Yeah. He doesn't really talk that much about, like, wanting to be king. Mm -hmm. It's not like this, like aspiration or goal that he's like had seemingly like he doesn't really talk about it from that point of view so his reasoning for like following through with this plan is almost like he just feels compelled i mean partly by lady Macbeth, i think but also just by this idea of fate yeah that this is something that's like going to happen no matter what to a degree yeah he's almost just letting it happen and but like still being active Yes. Like, he's passive and active at the same time in an interesting way. And I've, heard, like, I've read about comparing this play to Hamlet a lot. I, just you phrasing it that way made me think of Hamlet. Because, you know, Hamlet is so much of thought and wrestling with trying to come to, de- to a decision, right? Yeah. Spoilers for Hamlet. Hamlet's trying to decide how and if he should kill his uncle, right? Like, he knows he should, he knows he has to, but he really, like, struggles with that throughout the whole play, finally does it. In Macbeth, like, the killing of the king happens pretty early, yeah. and then the rest of the play is about kind of, like, what happens after that and kind of the consequences of that. Like, Macbeth doesn't really struggle with the decision to kill the king. Mm -hmm. It's sort of about what happens and how he struggles with the decision that he already made after and yeah. Hamlet's all the before. Yeah. <laughs> hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. In that perspective. Um his 
concerns are quickly brushed aside by Lady Macbeth. Yeah. Who's like, are you going to be a man? <laughs> are you a coward? Are you? Yeah. I mean, she literally calls him a coward and he's like, I mean, I'll kill him. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think I won't kill him. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> I, I mean, I'll jump. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is a, a pretty... Well known, I think, exchange between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth this moment mm-hmm. of her really challenging him yeah. on his courage and kind of like framing it as being an act of courage and yes. like kind of doing something that is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's a really interesting exchange in that regard. Yeah, almost like he needs to rise to the occasion. Um, she also talks about having like she's also kind of like oh you already basically promised that you would do this yeah I'm like did he though she's like why would you have written me that letter yeah if you weren't gonna do it yeah you already <laughs> pinky swore essentially <laughs> yeah and i i don't want to talk about it like really long but i do sort of want to mention the role of women and the role of lady Macbeth in this story because you know it's not like she's painted in a flatteringly in a flattering light. Yeah. But at the same time, she's very interesting. Yes. And I also really can't say that she's responsible for what Macbeth does either. No. But like when you compare her with the witches, their role is very strange in this story. Similar to degrees, like the witches on one hand are kind of in a role of neutrality where they're just like, hey, Macbeth, we're just giving you this info. You do with it what you want. Yeah. We know what you'll do with it. But like, you know, that's not up to us. Yeah, they're neutral, but they're also, I feel like, representing chaos. Yes. Right? Because yeah. they're putting this opportunity, this doubt in his mind um, to tempt him. And I think the the tempters, the temptresses being kind of this like adam and eve type thing almost like Mm -hmm. the woman tempting the man to sin you know yeah and like it's just it's just interesting to me yeah because then and then you have lady Macbeth, who's like much more pushy about like the whole murder thing (laughs) but there is this kind of dynamic between men and women in the story where like like you said, you can't fully blame the women of the story for Macbeth's actions. But then again, his choices seem to fully revolve, revolve around women. Yeah. And secondly, like not to jump to the very end of the story, but Macduff's advantage over Macbeth at the end, according to the prophecy, is that he was born not of woman. Yeah. He was a C-section baby and like pulled from his mother early. Yeah, that's what we are assuming happened there. Yeah, and so this idea that like his removal from women is like what gives him the advantage over Macbeth. Macbeth. I mean like you Who's could ar- ruled by women? Yeah, I mean you could argue like oh, it's just the prophecy. It's not that it gives him an edge, but like it's still kind of this interesting dynamic and like idea that is kind of like put forth in the story that yeah you know not to be like oh this story is like anti-woman but like you could certainly read it that way i think yeah plus you know at the time women being accused of witchcraft women being burned at the stake yeah for no good reason um yeah it just makes you think about what 
they're going for and what Shakespeare is going for here, you know, and yeah. how this has been interpreted as well. Because I think Lady Macbeth is a really dynamic and forceful and unique character, and I like her a lot. But I do, I feel like with Macbeth having almost like no motivation on his own, it can be read that like she forces him to do this. Yeah. Which I don't agree with. Yeah. You could also see it in a way of like Lady Macbeth has her eye on the prize, right? In terms of like Macbeth yeah. becoming king. And mm-hmm. she is like focused on that. And that is her goal. And she does that. And then later Macbeth is like really dumb. Yeah. And is like, oh, I have to do all this other murder. And she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, whoa, <laughs> yeah. hey, no. Like we did what we meant to do. And like yeah. there's kind of this like role reversal after the murder of the king mm-hmm. where suddenly she's the one who's like kind of almost like the voice of reason or yeah. the one who's like more grounded and Macbeth is just like flying off the handle. Mm-hmm. So there is like – That should also be, I think, considered with, like, this dynamic, you know, what happens after the murder of the king. Yeah. Let's talk about how they plan to pull off this murder. Yes. They are going to get the two guards of Mm -hmm. the king and his bedroom uh, drunk off of drugged wine, I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, And then while they are asleep, Macbeth will creep into the room, Mm -hmm. stab him, and then they will plant the... Uh, bloody daggers on the guards. Yeah. And this is essentially what happens. We have Macbeth going towards, you know, the king's room and he sees a dagger before him. Yes. It's a bloody dagger. Uh, In the movie, it's like just the door. It's the handle of the The door. The handle of the door. Yeah, which I kind of thought was like a interesting visual representation of this Mm -hmm. and making it just purely metaphorical. Yeah, and maybe Macbeth needs to see this to convince himself to do it. I don't know. Yeah. Or if this is an early sign of his madness, but it's true. He sees this dagger, he goes in, he's like, it's a sign, I gotta do that murder. (laughs) We actually get the murder scene in the movie here. In the play, it is not written. Yeah, and I always I always find this interesting about uh, Shakespeare films, right? Because, like, it's almost like a game or there are rules to it where it's like you can't fuck with the dialogue yeah. in a Shakespeare film or, or stage production. Like, the dialogue is sacred. Yeah. You can neglect parts of it. Yeah. You could even give certain lines to different characters, but, like, the you verbiage... Yeah, you don't change it. But you can also add scenes like this where there is no dialogue at all. Mm -hmm. And I always find it interesting how filmmakers approach uh, adaptations of Shakespeare and like the scenes they choose to add or how they kind of like tweak how they manipulate things within those parameters. Mm -hmm. So this scene is totally dialogue free of the king waking up to Macbeth sitting on his bed. Yeah. And there's this like awkwardness where the king's like, what's happening? Excuse me. Yeah. You know, Macbeth like almost shushes him and then just like, puts his hand over his mouth before stabbing him. Yeah, it's very upsetting, I'd say. <laughs> it's a pretty, uh, yeah, visceral stabbing. Yeah, plus you see the trust in the king's eyes before he gets stabbed. Yeah. Because he doesn't, like, freak out when he sees Macbeth there. No, you know? yeah. Which is really uh, sad. Very upsetting. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah, that is... um. 
That is sad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, After this murder, Macbeth, not handling it well, he returns (laughs) to his room, I'm guessing it is, and Lady Macbeth is asking him how it went, and Mm -hmm. he's like, uh... Fine. Um, Everything's I, great. I'm, it's it's great. I still have the daggers. And she's like, what? <laughs> she's like, put the daggers back. And he's like, I'm not going back in there. <laughs> and she's like, fine, I'll put the daggers back. So she goes in, puts the daggers onto the drugged guards, and smears a bunch of blood all over them yeah. also. I think there's this line that she says while she's waiting for Macbeth to come back for killing. Because she she's the one that drugs the guards, right? Yeah. And then leaves and then Macbeth goes in and she was like, you know, I, I could have done it myself. I I really could have. But then she says, like, he looked like my father when he was sleeping. Mm, I totally missed that line. Yeah. She's like, I would have done it myself, but he looked so much like my father. Wow. While asleep. That's kind of implying that maybe her conscience is already starting to prick at her well and i specifically remember when she goes to put the daggers back she says something about the bodies just being like pictures yeah and it feeling very um she's like lying to herself and trying to like justify it and and hype herself up to like go do this like terrible thing and that Mm -hmm. she's like in denial to a degree already yeah uh we also get this recurring knocking Mm -hmm. in this scene which at this point, I'd only been reading the play, and I kind of forgot how other adaptations I'd seen handled this. Yeah. But I was like, I don't quite understand what this knocking is. Mm-hmm. And I figured it was more just metaphorical than anything, but, like, uh, it was interesting how the movie did it by having the blood dripping from the king. Yeah. And it being this loud knocking each time uh, a drop hit the floor. Mm-hmm. And that kind of being, like, this sign of their guilt you yes. know and fear as to like what they just did yeah and transitioning to the not actual knocking of the guests coming in as well yes mm-hmm. uh we get a short but beautiful cameo <laughs> by my favorite character actor steven root who just appears in everything he is in everything even when we watch uh cartoon shows i'll be like oh that's steven root voice acting right now i can tell (laughs) uh but he plays like this this night guard yes you know porter the porter Mm -hmm. uh who is drunk and going to answer the door and he is just rambling to himself. <laughs> Steven Root does this amazing trip and trip. fall <laughs> mid-speech that is excellent. He eventually lets in Lennox and Macduff, who are two nobles, and they're like, hey, we're here. The king is going to come back with us. We're all going to travel together. Um, and the porter is going on and on about the feast they had last <laughs> night and how he got drunk. And um, he's talking about the three things that uh, drink provokes. And I just want to read part of this. I'm sorry if I butcher this. I'm not the best at Shakespearean language, but it's so funny. So the porter says, Mary, sir, nose painting, sleep, and urine. Lechery, sir, it provokes and unprovokes. It provokes the desire, but it takes away the performance. Therefore, much drink may be said to be an equivocator with lechery. It makes him and it mars him. It sets him on and it takes him off. It persuades him and disheartens him, makes him stand to and not stand to. In conclusion, equivocates him in a sleep and giving him the lie leaves him. <laughs> I love this uh, speech about how uh, when you get drunk, you get horny, but 
also cannot perform. Can't perform. <laughs> and, and Stephen Root's mannerisms too during this scene, like the yeah. stand to and not stand to, like lifting his arm up and down was like great. It's also interesting because that is like the only moment of levity or humor. Yeah. In basically the entire play. Yeah. A lot less dick jokes in this one than most Shakespeare. Yeah. Because I feel like even in his other tragedies, there's more like kind of drunken fool characters or like moments of humor. But like this is like the only type of moment like that in this whole play. This is also one of the shortest tragedies that he wrote. So. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so Lennox and Macduff are like, hey, we're going to go wake up the king. And then in the film. And Macbeth's like, yep, go ahead. (laughs) Macbeth is like standing in the shadows and he's like, uh, no, he's not up yet. I don't, I don't think. Just being like the most suspicious he could ever be. Uh, they quickly discover that the king has been killed. Macbeth runs up to see this thing that he hasn't seen before Mm -hmm. and takes the opportunity to murder the two guards who were like laying there with the daggers beside them. Yeah. And I I don't know if I don't think I quite got this in the play. And maybe this is like more of an addition of the, the film. But when this is mentioned to Lady Macbeth that Macbeth killed the guards, she seems like what did you do? Yeah. Like, it, this wasn't according to the plan. Well, it's not said what they'll do no, in the play No, it's not. Either. So it's not clear if this was part of their plan or wasn't, or if Macbeth just got nervous and was mm-hmm. like, I know, I'll just kill them. And then he kind of passes it off like, I was so upset about the king being dead, and it was clearly them. They had blood all over them. Yeah. Like, it was them. So I just did it, and I couldn't help myself. And everyone, you know, is sort of like, that's kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely loved, though, the way the movie handled this scene. Mm-hmm. Because after killing the guards, you know, Macbeth has this monologue as he's descending the stairs, explaining why he killed the guards and how he was just so impassioned and angered. And he's descending and looking to Lady Macbeth, who, you know, she started off with this uncertain look on her face mm-hmm. and concerned look when she heard he killed the guards. But as he monologues, and is explaining, like, his passion and anger and, like, giving this, like... what I se- did it for love. Yeah, what seems like a very convincing speech and ending about the, you know, doing it for love and passion. By the time they meet at the bottom of the steps, she looks like she's just, like, in love with him. And that yeah. he's, like, stepped up to this role that, you know, before he was, like, very uncertain about. Mm-hmm. And now they feel like they're on the same page with this. Yeah. And it ends... Almost like as an exclamation point with Lady Macbeth like fainting yes. in what feels like a very just like dramatic, fake. Yeah, yeah, fake way <laughs> to kind of like punctuate their uh, their performance. Whole- yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I really loved the way Joel Cohen handled that scene. Definitely, uh, the King's sons are like this is really weird mm-hmm. and are actually afraid of the two of them being killed next, so they decide to flee. Um, the main son, the one that was named heir, Malcolm, goes to England and is like, I'm just going to see kind of what happens because I think, uh, someone killed our father. And I think he's, he's suspicious of Macbeth, honestly. Yeah. Uh, so they're like, let's get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Which quickly, uh, turns into like accusations of 
guilt and that mm-hmm. they're the ones who actually orchestrated this yeah. uh, murder, which Macbeth like fuels mm-hmm. those conspiracies, I think. Yeah. And then Macbeth is named King. Yeah. And at this point I was like, oh, wow, this is like um, a third of the way into yeah. the play, which was very surprising. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, the story is more about the aftermath of this yeah, than about the act itself. And we have an interesting scene here where an old man is talking to Ross or one of the nobles about kind of just been what's been going on in the world and <laughs> yeah. how a lot of weird shit has been happening. Yes. Uh, the movie makes the interesting decision to make the old man clearly uh, uh, the one of the weird sisters yes. or all three, which I thought this is what was interesting about them being depicted as one person at the beginning. Yeah. Because when they we you see her as the old man, it's mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, it's kind of like all three of them. Yeah. Still. Yeah. And the the movie retains the one specific line about the king's horses going crazy mm-hmm. and how they ate each other. Yeah. She says. And in this moment, Ross looks up and the sky darkens mm-hmm. and clearly something is going on. Yeah. And I find it interesting because to me, the implication is that, like, this is only the beginning of a conversation between the two of them, mm-hmm. and you don't actually see where it goes or what happens here. Yeah, and we're also establishing in the universe of the play that, like, a lot of weird stuff is happening, and even um the night that King Duncan is killed, when Lennox and Macduff come in to wake the king up, they're like, oh, last night was really crazy. Like, yeah. there was this storm and we heard these owls shrieking, which owls are supposed to be an omen of the dead at this time. Like, a lot of um uncanny things are happening in nature. And, like, a lot of the analysis I was reading attached to this play is talking about kind of the natural order of things being upended and kind of how... Everything is out of place in this story. Yes. And this only continues with later with like Macbeth seeing ghosts. Yeah. And specifically tying into these second prophecies mm-hmm. that or the second set of prophecies that the witches give Macbeth. Yeah. Because at least two of them deal with like kind of unnatural or weird occurrences. Yeah. Uh, the one being a forest moving and the other is a man not born of woman. Mm-hmm. And it's like... Okay, so that's not going to happen, right? Yeah. But then in one form or another, they obviously do. Yeah, and I think also drawing attention to the fact that this murder is unnatural, right? And that murder is unnatural to humans um, and kind of sets this orderly world or this moral world into chaos. So you have Macbeth committing this atrocious act and nature itself kind of being disturbed by this act. You know, the sky being dark, even though it's day, the horses eating each other, (laughs) the, the, the different like, crows and birds behaving strangely um we also have lady macbeth asking to be unsexed so her femininity is being taken away she is rebelling against the natural order for her sex which Mm -hmm. is to be gentle mothering and kind so she's going against her nature yeah macbeth is kind of going against his nature as well um so a lot of like inversions and flipping and then we have, you know, in the end, everything kind of eventually being restored. Yeah. One of the analyses we read talked less about it, it said this was like less of like exploring the 
moral gray areas mm-hmm. of our actions and more explaining why the actions of like murder are wrong yeah and kind of like how they go against nature and kind of like the uh ramifications of mm-hmm. those choices yeah i think it's interesting to to point out that maybe the complicatedness of like masculinity in this society as well because it's perfectly fine for macbeth to kill these traitors on the field of battle yes and in fact they describe macbeth cutting a man open from his navel to his uh head Uh, yeah they say uh chops yeah in in the yeah in the dialogue (laughs) like very like vicious killing yeah but then for macbeth to kill his king it's suddenly like really wrong yeah you know and even lady macbeth pointing out like oh you would be a coward if you didn't do it so kind of this like double-edged sword of like violence but morality in this culture as well yeah and also how we quickly condemn lady macbeth through how she enacts these murders like through Macbeth. Yeah. While the king, who's kind of depicted as being like pure and good and kind of like yeah. unblemished, is literally doing the exact same thing. He's sending Macbeth out to like to kill, kill people, the traitors. But that's yeah. like never questioned. Mm-hmm. And I just find that those analyses really interesting because like I don't know if like Shakespeare was necessarily making a statement mm-hmm. with any of these like decisions, but there's certainly things worth like mentioning and considering. Definitely. And let's talk about a character we haven't really talked about in a while, which is Banquo. Yeah. And he was given the prophecy at the same time Macbeth was about his descendants becoming kings. And Banquo at this time has been kind of off and on. Like he's talked to Macbeth a little bit. He's like, have you been thinking about the prophecies? Because I've been thinking about the prophecies. And Macbeth is like, no. <laughs> what? Why would I think about the prophecies? But like Banquo with the king being dead and Macbeth now being king is like, did Macbeth do this or did it just happen? Like the which is said that it would. Yeah. And Banquo kind of representing like, you know, we talked about would Macbeth have been king if he had done nothing? Yeah. And how Banquo's uh, prophecy became true when mm-hmm. he didn't, like, make any active choices to, like, go in that direction. Yeah. So him kind of being, like, the opposite decision mm-hmm. or, you know, approach to this prophecy. Yeah. But, yeah, poor, poor Banquo. Poor Banquo. Uh, Macbeth at this time is thinking a lot more about the prophecies as well. Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, remember that? Banquo was given a prophecy that his descendants would be king. And like, now that I'm king, I want to stay king. Yeah. And so I think I need to take out Banquo. Yeah, which like, now we're kind of getting into like, spite or, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Kind of like, and and this goes to where, you know, Macbeth starts going down a path without Lady Macbeth. Yeah, he doesn't even tell her. No, he's like purposely excluding her from his plans. And kind of becoming vindictive mm-hmm. and really power hungry in yeah. his decisions. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. And I really enjoyed, you know, reading this play and just all of the modern day things that came to mind while mm-hmm. reading it. And you know what story came to mind more than any other while reading Macbeth? What? Is Breaking Bad. Oh, really? I just think there's so many interesting correlations with Breaking Bad. Yeah. In terms of like the moral decay 
of this man who's power hungry, mm-hmm. his justification for murder, but how clearly like he's flimsy it is. Flimsy it is and how he's just doing it kind of for himself and mm-hmm. um just the tragic nature of that story as well. I just thought it was like real not that like, you know, it's a parallel in the story, but like Breaking Bad oftentimes does feel like tragic in a Shakespearean way. Yeah. And specifically, I just get a lot of Macbeth vibes from it. That's interesting. I like that comparison. I think, too, Macbeth here starts to, like you were saying, like making these flimsy justifications, whereas before he wasn't really making any. He was just like, yeah, I'll do a murder. But here he's saying, (laughs) like, well, I already killed the king, right? I did all this so that I could be king. I have damned my soul. Like, I have done this thing that I can never take back. And he's like, did I do all that only for Banquo's family to someday inherit this throne? And he mentioned specifically, like, shouldn't my line, shouldn't my lineage be preserved? Like, I'm not just doing this for myself now. I'm doing it for my name. Yes. And for, like, what I will become in history and also for my descendants. And, like, it's interesting because he doesn't have kids at this time. Mm -hmm. But he's like, but my lineage and I don't want Banquo to inherit. Because if he was just content to be king and he doesn't have kids, right, he could just be like, well, Banquo can succeed after me. But he doesn't want Banquo to have anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is called the uh, the sunk cost fallacy. Exactly. He's like, I did one murder, and I can't have that just, like, go to waste on only me being king or for this limited time, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and this happens a lot in, like, murder stories. Like, somebody does something, but then they're in too deep, and they end up having to do more murder to in, cover up the original murder. In for a penny. Yes. In for a pound. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I think, too, this brings up a topic that we wanted to talk about from the film, which is that... Um, Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand as Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are obviously much older than traditionally portrayed for this play. Yeah, I really like this aspect. And maybe, you know, not everyone will like this, but I think, you know, we get so many iterations of these stories that making choices like this to just vary yours from the others and the different ideas and concepts that raise within your iteration of the story I find very interesting and in this case them being older it kind of recontextualizes a lot of their decisions Mm -hmm. like suddenly them vying for the throne in this aggressive way feels more like I mean, first of all, they don't have children and they're not gonna have children (laughs) and something I read was like they kind of said like It makes their history interesting because, like, clearly Lady Macbeth wasn't, you know, fulfilling her wifely duties. Mm -hmm. And Macbeth easily could have probably just, like, left her for another woman to have an heir. But he didn't. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of, like, creates this more interesting bond between them. Yeah. And because they have no heirs and they are older, like, this um, attempt for the throne feels more like... Not a last ditch effort, but kind of like them thinking about their legacies. Yes. And wanting something for themselves. Kind of like nearing the end of their lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like a really interesting um, aspect to put on this. Yeah, I I like it, but I also don't like it at the same time. I'm kind of conflicted on it because I do think it is 
less justification for just letting Banquo's family inherit, right? Because Macbeth is, you know, in his mind anyway, even though this is quite flimsy and it's just him kind of descending into this bloodbath, right? He is kind of like, well, I want my kids to inherit, right? Um, And he expects to have them, I think. There's no indication that... They will never have children. No. And we don't know how old they are, but, you know, he's a young man. He fights in battle pretty frequently. This is like, you know, in the Middle Ages, people did not live very long. So, like, he's (laughs) got to be in pretty good health, you know? So, like, I think the expectation is that he will have children and he wants to preserve his legacy. Whereas with them being older, I almost, it feels more of a stretch for him to be like, well, now I have to kill Banquo too, because why wouldn't he just be like, I'll just be king and then whoever, like, inherits when I die, why sh- why should I care? Yeah. You know? that That's true. It does kind of, like, it makes it just more, more spiteful. Yeah. And more just kind of, like, shitty that... He doesn't want Banquet to have Because he would it. be king until he dies, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, like, then again, he's such a morally corrupt person at this point that, like... Even the idea of not having control over who inherits the throne after yeah, him, yeah. like, it's illogical. But then again, a lot of what Macbeth does in this story is kind of, like, just batshit, you know what I mean? Like, him uh, later killing Macduff's family. Yeah. For kind no of, like, reason. no reason. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it 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 isn't fully justified, but it still feels somewhat in line mm-hmm. with his character. And this is interesting, too, because it actually... You know, earlier I was saying how the text of Shakespeare is kind of like, you can't touch it. Yeah. But they actually did tweak slightly one line earlier in this movie where when they were plotting to kill the king and Lady Macbeth convinces Macbeth to do it. Mm -hmm. He says something along the lines in the original play about may you only give birth to man children yeah. uh, because of your, like, temperament Mm -hmm. and your, like, kind of ruthlessness. Viciousness. Viciousness. Um, But in the movie, it's tweaked to kind of be, like, in the past tense where he's like, you should have only given birth to man children. Yeah. And just kind of, like, reinforcing the idea that, like, they're beyond the age of having children. Like, that path for them is kind of like gone Mm -hmm. and it's like just them moving forward yeah i mean denzel is very impressive in the fight scenes like i will probably talk yeah about them more at the end but like the fact that he is like a 67 year old man (laughs) and is doing these scenes like he was great he was and the (laughs) fact that they saved it until the end i I thought was kind of cool that you're like whoa yeah in that moment Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he he holds his own. And I mean, let's let's talk a little bit about Denzel in yeah. this role. Yeah. Uh, he's really fucking good. Yeah, he is. Uh, he has done Shakespeare before mm-hmm. in film with uh, Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah. And he just brings this gravity. He kind of has like this weariness to him, mm-hmm. but also this intimidation when he becomes like crazy, crazy and just <laughs> this like ruthless killer. Like yeah. there's a scene later on where one of his like servants is just giving him a message and he's just keeps calling him pale faced and like <laughs> goose liver <goose-livered. laughs> and like some of that like Denzel from like training day and yeah. those intimidating roles starts to come through a little bit. 
Uh, yeah, I, I mean, he's he's great. And the fact that he can still hold up in the fight scenes and the physicality that come later in the film is like mm-hmm. very impressive. Yeah, I think also Frances McDormand is really great she in is. this movie as well, kind of showing um, the strength of Lady Macbeth, but also uh, doing like the unraveling scenes pretty well, too. Yeah. When she starts to go crazy. I think they both do a good job of showing like their normal selves and then like their crazy selves. Yeah. I will say my one of my small gripes with the film is that and I don't know if this is so much performance as it is directing, but like some of the dialogue does kind of get rushed through a little bit. Yeah. Where it kind of just becomes like words that because the, the great thing about watching a, a good Shakespeare adaptation is like they're able to convey so much of the context that you can't get, like, when you're just reading it, it's confusing, yeah. or you're not quite sure what's being conveyed, but then you see a good actor tackling it. And you suddenly understand. Yeah, between, like, you know, their inflection and their expression and and tone and voice, like, they convey so much. Yeah. But there are times in the movie where the dialogue gets rushed through a little bit. And I agree. And isn't quite given that care to convey the meaning of the words yeah yeah i would agree with that assessment there are certain portions where it feels like it goes by really fast yeah and if i hadn't been reading the play right before i might have missed it yeah and like not even that they're plot points but it's like it's a monologue about the character's turmoil and Mm -hmm. if you're not really getting that it's kind of like a wasted opportunity a bit yeah uh, Macbeth decides to go forward with his plan to kill Banquo, but he doesn't want to do it himself anymore. He's king now. He's past that. He has yes. people that can do that for him. Yes. Um, he finds two men who he lies to and says that all their misfortunes in life are because of Banquo. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, what are you going to do about it? And they're like, I mean, what do you want us to do about it? And he's like, I mean, I need him killed for my own reasons. So if you're going to kill him for your reasons, we might as well combine our reasons. And you kill them. I'll reward you for it. Um, But you got to kill him. Yeah. And it's Banquo and his son, Fleance. Yeah. Uh, So he convinces these two killers to, you know, enact the murder while they are traveling to the castle, I think. Yeah, I don't to, know where they went. Yeah, I, I, I forget exactly, but he, basically Macbeth knows where he's going. And there's a great sinister moment in the film where he is talking to Banquo about his travels. And yeah. he asks, like, and Fleance will be with you? Mm-hmm. And Banquo getting suspicious in that moment. Yeah. I like the way that moment played out. Mm-hmm. So the two killers are on the road mm-hmm. and there's this interesting thing specifically in the play that's kind of a mystery yeah in Shakespeare lore which is there is suddenly a third murderer with them yeah and he's like hey guys are we ready to murder and they're like who are you and he's like oh Macbeth sent me and they're like oh well if Macbeth sent you then we're all good here right yeah and there's a lot of speculation as to like you know, who this third murderer is. Is he anyone? Yeah. Some people think he's like Macbeth in disguise. Mm -hmm. Uh, This movie made the choice, and it's not the first one to do it. The uh, Roman Polanski Macbeth also had Ross as the third murderer. Interesting. Apparently. And so this movie also goes with that uh, idea of Ross being, you know, there for this killing. Yeah. Which 
you know, it's just further highlighting his character and putting him kind of in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. This movie really does a lot with this character who, when you read the play... Doesn't seem like anything. Yeah, he just kind of seems like an exposition Mm -hmm. dump, you know what I mean? But, like, he really has a lot of interesting aspects in the film. Yeah, and, you know, Banquo and his son Fleance come upon the murderers, the murderers attack... Banquo is killed, but Fleance escapes. Yeah. The movie kind of shows uh, Ross chasing after Fleance and actually finding him in a field. We don't see what happens after that, but the other two murderers come back to Macbeth and tell him, yes, we killed Banquo. He's definitely dead, but Fleance got away. Yeah. Ross just gives Fleance like a creepy grin. And so yeah. it doesn't seem good <laughs> what happens to Fleance in that moment, but you don't see it. Yeah. So Macbeth is like, great. I just enacted the murder of my close friend. <laughs> Let's do a feast. Yeah. It's time to banquet without Banquo. <laughs> <laughs> banquet sans Banquo. Yes, but Banquo decides to show up anyway. He, he promised that he would. He did. He was like, I'm coming to the feast. Remember Macbeth? And Macbeth's like, you better be there. And he's like, I'll be there. <laughs> no matter what. Um, And Banquo's ghost appears at the feast. Yes. In the play, there is kind of this extended scene where Banquo sits in Macbeth's seat. Yeah. And Macbeth like won't sit in the seat for <laughs> understandable reasons. But yeah. everyone, everyone's like, sit down. Yeah. And he's like, no. He's like, where? <laughs> everyone's like, are you okay? <laughs> uh, but this kind of turns Macbeth into having like this fit of paranoid ranting and mm-hmm. Lady Macbeth is trying to like Keep the chill of the party. Keep the vibes good. <laughs> yeah. You know, reassure everyone. It's just a little thing. He'll yeah. be okay. He goes off sometimes. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's not just a little thing, though. No. He's uh, really freaking out. And he's seeing the ghost. And he is really being like, this makes no sense. Like, why would you come back to haunt me? Like, this isn't fair. Like, you're yeah. supposed to be dead. <laughs> the movie kind of shows him glimpse like Banquo or somebody walking by in the corridor and then he starts to follow it and it turns out that it's a bird actually which is only interesting because uh the witches in the movie have been depicted as crows yeah or ravens um earlier and so the bird being the illusion of the ghost kind of implies that like is this some trickery by the witches yeah uh it's not clear but it once again like the old man being a witch Mm -hmm. is putting them more in like an active role in the story yes but in kind of a mysterious way like what are what is their purpose yeah just they're kind of like checking in on things and just (laughs) adding a little spice to the pot every now and then yeah they get bored it's kind of like a reality tv show you know what i mean like if things aren't really going yeah they have to add a little conflict yeah yeah introduce a new person or a new uh drama start a rumor (laughs) get a talking head of macbeth (laughs) <laughs> Being like, yeah, I, I would have sworn it was Banquo. I don't know. <laughs> uh, the party is ruined because Macbeth cannot stop screaming about uh, seeing the ghost of Banquo. And everyone's like, this is weird. Um, and yeah, he and Lady Macbeth are kind of both starting to unravel at this point. You can really see it in Macbeth, but we're also starting to see a little bit of it in Lady Macbeth as well. Yeah, there's a moment in the movie where she just is like, oh. 
some of my hair fell out. (laughs) (laughs) This is fine. This is okay. (laughs) So Macbeth is like, you know what I need? I need more one-on-one time with the witches. (laughs) Yeah. That'll fix everything. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the prophecies that they gave to him at the beginning really did help him find his path, right? Yeah. His path to murder. And now he's like, I'm still murdering. Should I keep murdering or is there another path I should take? (laughs) Yay or nay on the murdering. (laughs) (laughs) And he ends up finding the witches. In the play, it seems like he goes to seek them out. And in the movie, they come to him. I love the way the movie approaches it with mm-hmm. it kind of being like a dream sequence. Cause like yeah. Lady Macbeth gives him some medicine. Mm-hmm. So it almost seems like he's tripping or something more than anything. Yeah. Cause in the play it's like he, he can just find them. Like, yeah. He knows, where are they? Yeah. Where, where are they? Mm-hmm. Um, the visuals of the movie in this scene though are just so good. Yeah. With him waking up and the witches are sitting up in these rafters of his room Mm -hmm. and his whole room is like flooded. Yeah. And so this cauldron that they're referring to as, you know, the spell or, you know, as as they're inducing or invoking the spirits Mm -hmm. is just like the entire room. They're like dropping the... Um, ingredients. ingredients into <laughs> it, it, it visually it's just stunning it's it so is. good it's really cool looking and I love their like shadows and their shape they look very crow like kind yeah. of perched up on the rafters there uh, and Macbeth is asking them he's like listen what do I do like it seems like Macduff is turning against me like what's happening and the witches kind of call on these spirits that speak to Macbeth and give him some cryptic prophecies. They tell him to watch out for Macduff. Yeah. Because he's going to betray him. They tell him that um, he will not be overthrown until uh, the woods comes to the castle. Yeah. And that he cannot be hurt by anyone who's born of woman. Yeah. And... Really, like, it should have been, like, a fight club thing. where Because it, it's really the first rule that's, like, probably the most important. Yeah. Avoid Macduff. Yeah. The second rule, <laughs> avoid Macduff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Macbeth is reassured by this, but then he does ask about Banquo. And he's still worried about Fleance escaping and, like, the legacy of Banquo's descendants. And this is not in the movie at all. No, no, it's not. But there's this whole scene in the play where Macbeth is shown a line of kings and they all look like Banquo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's like, it's not really getting around that. that. You kind of look like Banquo. And then Banquo's also there. Um, And so he can't avoid this fate. Yeah. And it's sort of driving home to him that like, he's being given these prophecies that he can't be defeated, right? And that he'll be fine. Yeah. But then he's also being shown this line of kings. And the last in line to be shown is supposed to be James I. I see. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's why it's specifically eight. That makes yeah. sense. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, You know, I kind of like the movie leaving this out because to a degree, despite everything going to shit later on, mm-hmm. Macbeth is like... Yeah, but no one can touch me. Like, I'm yeah. impervious. Like, he still has this... Uh, Confidence. Yes, that, like, he's fine and that everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. Which, like, the lineage of Banquo 
like you said, is kind of like contradicting yeah. that already. Mm-hmm. Plus, the movie sets up the uncertainty of Fleance's fate. Yeah. Uh, when he's discovered by Ross. So it makes sense that they wouldn't like establish right there and then that he's like safe and that yeah. the lineage will happen. So mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, basically Macbeth's main takeaway is like, okay, so I'm I'm, I'm fine, right? I'm fine. <laughs> this is all okay, right? Like, I'm feeling okay about this. And none of these things in the prophecies could ever come true, so I'm good. Yeah. Uh, but as soon as he is, uh, you know, the witches are gone, mm-hmm. he's like, okay, time to do some more murders. Yes. I just want to briefly mention that the play also has some additional scenes with the witches. Oh, right. Um, and this is sort of a weird part of this play where most scholars believe that this was added by Thomas Middleton and that this was not in Shakespeare's original play. And there's a few different theories as to why these parts might be in here. They're like all involving um, Hecate and the witches and like them singing and dancing specifically and like Shakespeare, there's not really like singing and dancing in Shakespeare Mm -hmm. usually. Um, And they think it's from Thomas Middleton because the the songs are in reference to like a play that he did. Uh, I see. Okay. Um, And some people think that like Shakespeare allowed these additions to be made. Some people think that maybe this was added for one particular performance that they did. Yeah. Um, Because they performed in like a very large stage, which was different than the Globe Theater where they normally performed Mm -hmm. um, for one performance. So they're like, maybe they added it just for this one performance. Um, But yeah, it's not included in most adaptations of Shakespeare because it doesn't really fit in with the rest of the play. (laughs) Tonally, it's like (laughs) a little... Tonally, it's very cartoon, which... Ish. Yeah, and the the witches kind of seem to speak differently. Like they're yeah. not like in the other parts that Shakespeare definitely wrote. They're like speaking in just kind of like riddles mm-hmm. and weird eccentric ways, and they don't seem to be that way in those yeah. other parts either. So <laughs> yeah, the one of our notes was like Shakespeare probably didn't write this part, and I was like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> but it makes sense. Most adaptations would like leave that out. Yes. Let's get back to the murders. Yeah, of course. It's <laughs> Macbeth. We have to have a murder. <laughs> Macbeth is like, okay, I have to kill Duncan's whole family. Macduff. I'm sorry. Macduff's whole family. Even though like none of the prophecy had anything to do with like his children. No. Or his lineage they or anything. They just said beware Macduff. Yeah. So I don't know if they thought Macduff would be there? Well, he knows that Macduff isn't there. Yeah, that's what I thought. So he finds out after the witches tell him all this that Macduff has fled to England. And Macbeth kind of knows that Macduff has gone to seek out Malcolm and to betray him because he wants Malcolm, who is Duncan's son, to be king instead of Macbeth. It's a lot of M names. I, I understand. <laughs> it's very confusing. But he's basically like... Oh, so the person the witches told me to be aware of has gone to find that um, prince whose father I killed to try to make him king instead of me. So he's betrayed me. Yeah. So he's like, I know what I'll do in retaliation for what he's done. I'm going to just kill everyone in his family. Yeah. We get a scene of Ross. So once again, Ross making mm-hmm. an appearance. And it's like that in the in the play. But uh he shows up to speak to 
Lady Macduff mm-hmm. and her son. And she's kind of like, yeah, my piece of shit husband yeah. has left me. And, you know, he's not a super good husband or father because of that. Like, he lacks the natural touch. Yeah, again, with the nature thing, yeah. right? Like, that Macduff even is going against nature. Mm-hmm. And, like has done this, has abandoned his family. Yeah. Which I think is cool because Macduff isn't the villain, right? Yeah. But he's still portrayed in a villainous way, I think. Yeah. And he's also not the one who ends up inheriting the throne, right? Yeah, I find that interesting how he kind of has the main conflict with Macbeth at the end. Yeah, it's between the two of them, but it's not like he becomes king after Macbeth. Yeah. But it's almost like... He's corrupt, right? Mm. So he can't be king um, because he did this thing. Yeah. And like Banquo's lineage and Malcolm's lineage are the ones that foster James the first, right? Yeah. So that's the noble and like pure and moral lineage that the king comes from. Mm. Whereas Macduff and Macbeth, like both end up having their lineages cut off for one reason or another. That's true. And they're both the ones that engage with the violence and the murdering and the killing because Macduff is the one, spoiler, to to kill Macbeth, you know? But I think this is kind of foreshadowing... I don't I don't know if it's even foreshadowing anything, but it is sort of placing a lot of blame on Macduff, and I like that Lady Macduff is like... Yeah, it's his fault if anything happens to us because he just fucking left us here. It's his fault if someone, I don't know, breaks in in the next 10 minutes to murder me and my child. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying it will happen, but if it does, it will certainly be his fault. Yeah. Uh, And that's what happens. Yeah. Uh, I do like the inclusion in the film. Ross, when he's speaking to her, glances out the window and sees like six or seven men riding towards the castle. Yeah. And he's like, I'm just going to go. Time for me to leave. Just now. Just coincidentally, now's the time I'm going to leave. And once again, just adding to this idea of like, where is Ross kind of in this like. Blame. Yeah. Like, you know, he's working for Macbeth to a degree, but then like in the shadows doing other things Mm -hmm. and like going to Macduff later and kind of like playing all the angles. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he abandons Lady Macduff and her son who, you know, they have a brief discussion on like kind of morality and like what it means to be a traitor and who is right to accuse and execute people who are traitors. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting discussion until they are murdered. Until they're killed. Until they're killed. <laughs> and then it's shortly after this that Ross, well, he, he Ross does eventually find uh, Macduff and Malcolm. In England. In England. Uh, but we get a scene that in the play lasts a really long time. Yeah, Macduff is coming up to Malcolm and is like, listen, I'm here. I want to support you to become the King of Scotland. We have to overthrow Macbeth. And Malcolm is like, why should I trust you? You could be working for Macbeth. And then starts to talk about how he's the worst person in the world. Malcolm is speaking about himself. Yeah, he's like, listen, I am just a shit. (laughs) Like, I'm so greedy. I love killing. I love 
raping women, like all this stuff. Yeah. And Macduff keeps being like, well, you know, it's okay to like kind of rape women sometimes. And he's like, I mean, a little bit of greed is okay. But then he's finally like, okay, I can't support you. You're terrible. And Malcolm's like, haha, I was just testing you. I'm actually a virgin. Uh, yeah. And Macduff is like, oh, thank God. And I'm like, you're a virgin? <laughs> How old are you? <laughs> also that like, that's the opposite of raping a woman. Yeah. It's like being a, I don't know. It's just like a weird. Yeah. The whole thing is kind of like weird. It is. And I think especially the fact that like, it is focusing on these two characters that were kind of only around a little bit at the beginning yeah. and that we haven't seen for quite a while in the story. Mm-hmm. And that like when you're reading this in the play, you're like, I'm sorry, are Who, these, yeah. how significant are these two? Like this mm-hmm. is like a lot of exploration of their characters. Yeah. Then there's also a brief moment where like a doctor shows up <laughs> and they're talking about this like illness that's going and around. The king curing people. Yeah. And then he's like, okay, goodbye. I just <laughs> wanted to give you that random tidbit of information. And then they like go, continue to like discuss other things. Yeah. Uh yeah, it's just so much of this was cut from the film and I think very rightfully so. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. Ross arrives though to tell Macduff very slowly <laughs> that his whole family has been killed. Ross is such a shit in this moment cuz like know. Macduff is first like how's my family and Ross very specifically is like They were fine the last time (laughs) that I saw them. (laughs) And then they talk about other things, and he's like, okay, now that we got that out of the way, I did hear a rumor that your whole family was killed. (laughs) Ross is like, okay, I'm realizing now that I probably, I can't I should have led with this. Yeah, I probably, I can't get away with saying what I said. I need to tell you, your wife and child are dead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he, in the play, he says, they're well and then, like, at pe- they are at peace or something. And, like, all the little notes that we have on the side of the book are, like, well means that their souls are at rest. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, is this supposed to be funny? Yeah. I mean, again, it's sort of like the witches. Yeah. In the way they say true. things to trick you. So another, like, connection between Ross and the witches, honestly. Yeah, that's really fair. Um yeah, uh... Foul is fair. I really... What? Foul is fair. Foul is fair. And fair is foul. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, I love this moment, though, because, you know, Ross tells him, your wife and child are dead. Yeah. And Macduff is like, oh, my God, is my wife okay? And he's like, no, she's dead. <laughs> she's like, oh, my God, what about my children? And he's like, I told you already, they're all done. <laughs> like, I'm saying it in a funny way, and it's not funny, but, like... I, just the idea that he's, like, so grief-stricken that he's, yeah. like, not even able to, like, absorb the information. Mm-hmm. And I just think there's, like, a lot of, like, a realism and nuance to that kind yeah. of in the writing. Yeah, and as, like, angry as I was at Macduff because he did, like, abandon his family, you do really feel for him in this scene. Yeah, and there's a great exchange between him and Malcolm where Malcolm is, like, trying to use this to get... Macduff like angry and wanting to go into battle against Macbeth yeah he says something like let this be the whetstone that sharpens your anger Mm -hmm. and things like that and and he says something about like being a man yeah and Macduff counters with like I must first feel this like a man yeah in its fullness Mm -hmm. and kind of like give me a fucking moment please yeah and I liked that line a lot too yeah 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 I didn't love how Malcolm very like 
Oh, well, what a great reason to kill Macbeth, <laughs> to right? To do a murder, <laughs> to do a revenge. Let's go, let's go back to Scotland. I got some English forces with me. Let's uh let's go kill Macbeth. Yeah. I mean, that is what they do, but yeah, this is a really sad scene. It is. Let's check in on the Macbeths, see how they're doing. Uh Macbeth <laughs> is a huge piece of shit yeah at this point he's yelling at people he's just calling people names yeah he's just kind of like once again denzel washington's performance is kind of like slouch in his throne and like a lot of the thanes and like just uh warriors are leaving him Mm -hmm. like they're kind of abandoning the castle and abandoning him yeah and even though this is concerning macbeth still kind of has this like confidence in the idea that well, until the woods literally move to the castle, yeah, uh, I'm fine, and no man born of woman can touch me. So he's still kind of like feeling protected and confident by these predictions. Yeah. At the same time, Lady Macbeth not doing so well. Yeah, she's sleepwalking, and she is, you know, enacting this hand washing scene in her sleep where she's trying to wash blood off her hands and you know we have the famous line like out damn spot where she feels like she literally has blood on her hands yeah from the murder of king duncan and not just that she specifically mentions like she knows about the murder of banquo she knows about the murder of lady Macduff and her children and also that's weighing on her conscience and like there's this doctor and her maid that are watching her sleepwalk here and they're hearing her say all this stuff <laughs> yeah. and they're like uh who's to say I'm what she's talking about gonna forget all of yeah. this <laughs> yeah this is one of the most interesting aspects of the story to me is that like you know at first lady macbeth is so uh like resolved to do this murder and yeah. seems like so kind of cold about it and like calculating Mm -hmm. while Macbeth is the one kind of contemplating the decision and like really second guessing it all and then of course after the first murder their their roles kind of flip where Lady Macbeth begins to feel the weight of their decision morally and like really feeling her consciousness about it yeah uh conscience yeah sorry (laughs) (laughs) um and meanwhile Macbeth has just like slipped farther into his cruelty and his, you know, villainy. Yes. And not caring about human life or pretty much anything at this point. Yeah, he's like, women, children, kill him. I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. And I I like this kind of, like, flipping of, you know, the morality here. Yeah. Unfortunately, Lady Macbeth dies. And it's somewhat implied that she kills herself in the play. Yeah, it's weird because it seems like they set it up that the doctor says, like, oh, I've seen people who sleepwalk who yeah. die in their sleep. Mm-hmm. Like, kind of either it's just, like, an ailment or maybe they do something that, you know, they Poison die. Poison themselves. Yeah. But then <laughs> the play later on after her death, they imply that it was suicide. So yeah. I don't know if they're just setting up this ambiguity or mm-hmm. what. There is a kind of suspiciousness, too, with Ross again. In the in the movie. Oh, yeah. Like, Lady Macbeth is just standing at the top of the steps, and he, like, walks towards her. And I'm like, did he push her down the steps? I forgot Like, how did she that. die? Yeah. <laughs> because late in the film, specifically, Macbeth, like, sees her at the bottom of the steps. Yeah. 
So, yeah, Ross maybe (laughs) pushed her down the steps. I kind of forgot about that connection. Yeah, so adding to the suspiciousness of Ross. But Macbeth is, you know, devastated to hear about Lady Macbeth's death, and this kind of shakes him. And we have one of the most famous uh, monologues and uh, set of lines from Shakespeare. And I just want to read it because it's so touching to a lot of people, myself included. So... He's being told that the queen, the queen, my lord, is dead. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Just so good. It's excellent. And kind of like, it's a monologue full of like nihilism. Yeah. You know, and that like, what has any of this amounted to? Like, what's the point of all this? Mm -hmm. And it's also like fourth wall breaking in an ironic way. About players on a stage. Yes. And, you know, the world being a stage, you know, that whole quote, but like the idea that in this context, Shakespeare is essentially God kind of like controlling the people Mm -hmm. and kind of like almost self-reflecting like our death, our lives, what it means. Yeah. Just an amazing monologue that leaves you a lot to think about. Definitely. I also would love to talk about as the siege is happening here and the forest starts to come towards the castle. Yes, because the soldiers are... I didn't understand this when I saw it in the film. Mm -hmm. They're holding branches over their heads. Yeah. And I guess it's to, like, um, obscure the number of soldiers that are approaching. Mm -hmm. So the forest is literally coming to the castle. Yes, and the sets of the movie here are really interesting and cool. We have, like, scenes of the windows opening in the castle and leaves blowing in. Yeah. Kind of the forest literally coming yes. into the castle. And you pointed out in his in his hall. Yeah. The columns of that are, you know, supporting the ceiling like look like tree trunks almost with yeah. the leaves scattered on the floor. Mm-hmm. I mean, just once again the set design in this movie is unbelievable. Yeah. The stark black and white contrasts and like the surreal mm-hmm. uh just design of everything just uh it's so dreamlike and and interesting it is and we get the fight scene here between Macbeth and young Seward young Seward <laughs> this fight scene fucking brought it oh my and God. I was not expecting it <laughs> so here's here's my quick breakdown of why this fight scene is so good yeah first and foremost, It is telling story within the fight scene. Mm -hmm. It's not just a fight scene of who's going to win, right? Because Seward enters and, you know, is challenging Macbeth. And, like, he seems a little intimidated. And Macbeth mentions uh, you being born of woman. Yeah. So. I think he says, like, are you woman born or something like that. And then he stands from his throne with his arms out and approaches uh, Seward. Basically, like fucking come at me (laughs) and so you can't hurt me yeah and so seward begins you know swinging at him and this is where denzel really brings the physicality 
And, you know, this is all shot really wide. You're seeing the action really well. It's Mm -hmm. really well choreographed. Him kind of like ducking and weaving, going behind a column. He just swings out and fucking bitch slaps Seward, (laughs) like, to the ground. (laughs) And... You know, at one point, Seward swings at Macbeth and he doesn't even dodge in it. It just like grazes his cheek. Yeah. But just this idea that Macbeth is feels so untouchable. Yes. And at one point, he even gets Seward's sword. Mm-hmm. Say that five times. Seward's sword. <laughs> and he tosses it back to him. Yeah. Like he feels that untouchable. Yeah. And he ends up winning by flicking blood his own blood in yes. Seward's face <laughs> and then killing him with a dagger. Yeah, it's pretty I, good. It was so well done. <laughs> like, honestly, as as good as, I can't say the Coen brothers yeah. in this case, because this is Joel Cohen's first official solo project. I, sh- I shouldn't say official. He's been credited before as being a solo director, but Ethan Cohen has always been involved yeah. to some degree or another. Mm-hmm. This is the first time it's just Joel Cohen. Yeah. I kind of would love to see him do more action-oriented stuff because between this and, like, No Country for Old Men... Yeah. He's really good at choreographing and filming action. hmm And I wouldn't mind seeing something a little more focused on that in the future. Write him a letter. I will. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, this, this fight scene was just so fucking good. Yes. And then we have another fight scene between Macbeth and Macduff. And at first, Macbeth does not want to fight Macduff because he's like listen I killed your whole family I'd feel bad if I killed you also uh so let's let's not do this nobody can hurt me I'm invulnerable you'll just end up dead and this is where uh Macduff reveals that he is not technically a woman born because he was ripped from his mother's womb uh nice right (laughs) (laughs) like yeah he's like he was probably like, I don't know why this is relevant. I'm but, just going to share this with you now. But, but technically, <laughs> I was not really like born from my mom so much as like pulled out of her. Yeah. Uh, and so in this moment, now Macbeth is like, oh, now I really don't want to fight you because mm-hmm. now I'm actually seeing how the, this could go wrong. How the witches are fucking with me. It's yeah. finally making sense to me. <laughs> like the pieces are it's all like, here. Oh, they've been fucking with me this whole time. Oh, that's right. Um. Quick shout out to Corey Hawkins, who plays Macduff. Yeah. He's specifically in this scene when he confronts Macbeth, he says something like, I have no words. My words are in my sword. Mm -hmm. And just kind of like, and he conveys that just being at a loss of anything to say to this man Mm -hmm. who was responsible for murdering his wife and child. Yeah. We get the second fight scene that Mm -hmm. is on like the ramparts. Not quite as good as the first one, but still really well done. Yeah. I like that Macbeth's undoing is his crown slips off. Yeah. He reaches for it. And when he reaches for it, Macduff kills him. Cuts his head off, actually. Yes. (laughs) In a great shot that sends the crown flying. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I love giving that context to like, it's not just that Macduff is woman born or whatever. Like, that's not the only reason he died. Like, the real reason is his kind of obsession with... The His, crown. The crown, yeah. Mm-hmm. And power. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they are like parading <laughs> Macbeth's decapitated head to everyone. They're like, here you go, Malcolm. You're the new king. And we get this little like epilogue in the in the play, especially um, where Malcolm is like, okay, great. I'm king now. Also, you're all earls now. 
You're not Thanes anymore. You're Earls. Yeah. Very English uh, aspect yeah. to it. And kind of setting up this idea of the lineage of James I, for sure. And then in the movie, we get another little scene where we see Ross... And he's there with Fleance, the Banquo's son. He returns to the shack that he met the old man slash witch. the witch, where uh, I think he pays them. Yeah. And then they return from the shack with, with Fleance. Mm-hmm. So, like, once again, like, in that one scene where Ross met the old man, and it seemed like there was more to their conversation we didn't see. Yeah. And this idea that, like, what did he know of the witch Mm -hmm. and the prophecy and like what was going to happen? Like how much of a role did he have in all of this? And at the end you're like, Oh, that's nice. He saved Fleance. But then again, he's like, he probably knows he's going to be King. Yeah. Like he, he's setting up his powerful situation. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And so I really love kind of, you know, even though Macbeth is dead in this story, Mm -hmm. kind of being like, there's still, shitty people out there (laughs) you know (laughs) conniving yeah 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 Yeah, this addition to the the movie i think is very interesting and adds some intrigue to the story yeah and and the character of ross who is also great in the Mm -hmm. movie so yeah that's uh that's it that's it that's both play script Mm -hmm. and the film adaptation so i think i feel like it's cheating to ask about which is better I totally agree because like the the play is not meant to just be read yeah. despite that we all do this like in either high school classes or college classes you typically just read it and then you'll maybe watch a movie adaptation of yeah. it like there are two parts of you know the equation yeah you need to see it yes and it's meant to only be a script there's meant to be interpretations and variations and mm-hmm. like it's incomplete as it is yeah you know yeah I think when we did 10 Things I Hate About You, we chose 10 Things I Hate About You because the taming of the shrew was just kind of problematic and we didn't like it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and for that one, we also had to watch a uh, film version that was just more faithful, more faithful to the play to kind of get that context. And we could probably compare them better in that regard. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it's like. Yeah, it, it, it would feel just like totally almost pointless to pick one. Yeah. So we're not picking one. I guess we're not picking one. <laughs> we're, we're taking the coward's way out. And we're just going to say. That well, we could split it between us. That's true. Let's call this one a split. Okay. Just for because later we'll tally up. Yeah, the, the results. books and movies. And it feels fair to just call this one a split. All right. Let's split it. All right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that is the end of our episode. I guess it's time for lightning round. Yeah, let's do a lightning. Okay. So we all know, uh, you know, this movie is was filmed in black and white, Mm -hmm. but actually like all of the sets were constructed and painted to be black and white. Oh, wow. In fact, like they even painted a lot of the shadows uh, to like really clearly define them. And also, except for, I think, a few dresses that Frances McDormand wears, the costumes we're also black and white. Wow. So like everything was just grayscale. <laughs> we're in the not film. taking any chances with color. No. <laughs> um, and I, something else I read and I haven't seen any examples to like back this up, but I would believe it is that 
apparently also the the color temperature will shift mm. between scenes, meaning like you might go from like cooler grays to like warmer, more reddish grays, depending on like what the scene is. Interesting. I don't know if that's like a gradual change throughout the movie or just like scene to scene, mm-hmm. but that's kind of interesting. Uh, so what I have for lightning round is some of the witches scenes are really like random when they're talking to each other. And like in the beginning, the witches are talking about how like one of them was mad at a sailor's wife. So she decided (laughs) to curse the sailor so that he would be like lost at sea and couldn't come home. And then another one is like, oh, I have the thumb of like a a sea captain. Yeah. And I'm like, is it that same guy? <laughs> Did he like get shipwrecked and then she's like I got I got me a thumb now. Yeah. The movie even shows it when she's like twisting around herself in the sand. She, oh, she just yeah. has like a thumb and she's like messing with it. Also doesn't she spit one out of her mouth later? Yeah, there's a finger that gets spit out later that's added to like the cauldron slash like the the pool at Macbeth's feet in the movie. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of like appendages happening here. Yes. Not great. Specifically digits. <laughs> a lot of digits. Yes, a lot of digits. A uh, little bit of a shorter lightning round this time. I feel like we really talked about everything that we wanted to talk about. In yeah, this. I felt like we brought up a lot of the fun facts and interesting tidbits we wanted to throughout the episode. So yeah, it's just a uh, twofer at the end. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We really enjoyed getting to do something a little bit different. I hope yeah. no one was too upset that we couldn't uh, <laughs> pick one over the other. Yeah, let us know what you think. If you have a favorite Shakespeare adaptation, a favorite Macbeth adaptation, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, yeah, we already plugged our Patreon, so check that out if you want uh, access to the bonus episode, which will be coming later on this month. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and you can email us at coveredacreditspod at gmail.com. All of that can be found at coveredacredits.com. Additionally, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leaving us a positive review or star rating is extremely helpful uh, in the algorithms, apparently. Yes, the internets. The, the great <laughs> algorithm gods. <laughs> Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.